ان الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور انفسنا وسيئات اعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له واشهد ان لا اله الا الله وحده لا شريك له واشهد ان محمدا عبده ورسوله اما بعد تريدن ذا تشابتر باب قول الله تعالى انزله بعلمه والملائكه يشهدون قال مجاهد يتنزل الامر بينهن بين السماء السابعه والارض السابعه so in this chapter then an ayah from the quran is mentioned as the chapter heading anzalahu bi'ilmihi wal malaikatu yashhadun that he revealed it with his knowledge and the meaning of that we'll discuss in a moment and the angels yashhadun that they are witness to that so anzalahu bi'ilmihi al-dhamiru ya'udu ala al-qur'an that Allah revealed it with his knowledge the pronoun it refers to the qur'an لأن الله يقول لكن الله يشهد بما انزل اليك انزله بعلمه that Allah testifies to that which he revealed to you he revealed it with his knowledge and this can have two meanings firstly if bat انه انزله اليك بعلم منه انك خيرته من خلقه يعني كانه قال انزله عن علم منه the first meaning could be an affirmation that he has revealed it to you the quran to you بعلم منه with knowledge from him knowing that you are the best the chosen one from his creation the second meaning ان العلم هنا مراد به المعلوم that the meaning of knowledge here is the ma'lum the object of that knowledge and in that case in this instance that would be Yaya says anzalahu bi'ilmihi well the full section lakinillahu yashhadu bima anzala ilayka that Allah testifies to what he has revealed to you anzalahu bi'ilmihi he revealed it with his knowledge the pronoun here refers to the Quran 
The Quran is what was revealed by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala with knowledge from him. The knowledge could mean إِثْبَاتُ أَنَّهُ أَنزَلَهُ إِلَيْكَ بِعِلْمٍ مِنْهُ أَنَّكَ خِيرَتُهُ مِنْ خَلْقِهِ Allah revealed that Qur'an to you knowing that you are the selected one from his creation. يعني كأنه قال أنزله عن علم منه That Allah revealed that upon knowledge from him. Second meaning that Allah revealed it or the knowledge أن العلم هنا مراد به المعلوم that the intention of the knowledge, Allah revealed it with his knowledge. The meaning of the knowledge is al-ma'loom, that which is known. Allah revealed it with that which is known. Anzalahu bi'ilmihi al-muradu bihi al-ma'loom. That's not so straightforward. So, What's going to be required then as a homework this week is to bring the tafsir of this ayah in detail. Detail, reasonable detail meaning a page or so. Tafsir of this particular ayah from the various sources. And what are the sources? So if you are now going to go and check, let's say you come across an ayah of the Qur'an and you want to know what this ayah of the Qur'an means, you need to find the tafsir of this ayah. So where are you going to search? Where are you going to look? Which books are you going to search in? There's the famous tafsir Ibn Kathir. Famous book of Tafsir, Tafsir of Ibn Kathir. Also, you have the famous book of Tafsir, Tafsir of At-Tabari, Al-Imam At-Tabari, also known as Ibn Jarir. Sometimes you might hear of the book Tafsir of Ibn Jarir. That is the same as Tafsir of At-Tabari. Ibn Jarir is At-Tabari. At-Tabari is Ibn Jarir. Also, from the modern day ones, you have the Tafsir of Al-Sheikh Abdurrahman Al-Sa'di. That is a very simple very simplified book of tafsir. And they call it a tafsir ijmali. A tafsir ijmali, meaning that it is a very broad, summarized, general tafsir. It doesn't go into details of chains of narration or narrators or anything like that. It just mentions the ayah and gives you the general, this ayah means X, Y, and Z. This ayah gives us the benefit of X, Y, and Z. 
and that's it. Doesn't go into any of the narrations or the athar or the chains or anything like that. Simplified, clear, general meanings of the ayat. And it's small as a consequence. You can get it in one volume. You can get prints these days of that tafsir in one fat volume. Otherwise, the older prints were eight volumes. So that is a good tafsir, in fact. For a beginner, just to get a general understanding of an ayah and the general benefits of a particular ayah, then going to that particular tafsir, tafsir of a Sa'di, is a good thing. Tafsir of a Sa'di. Also, modern day ones again, true, a Shaykh al has tafsir of many parts of the Qur'an printed too. Otherwise, tafsir al-Baghawi, also one of the famous ones, tafsir of al-Imam al-Baghawi, that is also a reference point for tafsir. Also, Al-Qurtubi, Tafsir of Al-Imam Al-Qurtubi, also one of the main famous books of Tafsir. So there you have five or six from the famous core books of Tafsir, and there are many others too. You get specific books of Tafsir from the Salaf, specific sections of Tafsir from this Sahabi, that Sahabi, but overall, as main core books, they are some of the main books you would use for tafsir. The scholars, they mention that all of those books of tafsir, at the head of them in reality is tafsir of At-Tabari, Ibn Jarir. And that all of these other books of tafsir are really taking from him. They all benefited from him. Many of the others that come afterwards, Ibn Kathir included, they benefit from At-Tabari. Tabari is a much more complicated type of tafsir with the change of narration and the Athar and the Asanid and all types of things. But the further down you go, Ibn Kathir, etc., they do become less complicated in reading and understanding. And then if you come to the tafsir of Sheikh Abdurrahman al-Sa'idi, for example, it's even clearer and simpler. That one, I think it's in Urdu, tafsir al-Sa'idi, and English, I don't know. English too, it's available in English too. Ibn Kathir, available in English, and the others in Arabic, I think. Huh? Which one? Tafsir ibn Kathir. Tafsir ibn Kathir in English. Asa'adi in English. And the others in Arabic. Even though there was a rumor approximately a decade ago that they were translating Tafsir al-Tabari. That they were translating Tafsir al-Tabari. Tafsir al-Tabari, it needs more than one of these shelves. Two of those shelves are just about fit Tafsir al-Tabari. Huge book. And they said they were apparently translating it into English. It doesn't actually make that much sense 
to translate a book like that into English. Because the reality is there are certain types of books that can be translated into English and they can be read and understood and benefits can be taken from them. But then there are certain types of books that you need to learn how to even use and understand the book before you can start reading that book. There's a science to how to use that book. And there's a level at which that book is going to be used at. And that type of level isn't going to be achieved unless you've gone past the level of understanding Arabic in the first place. So books like that, it's questionable as to their purpose in the English language. Because a person who doesn't understand Arabic generally isn't going to be at the level whereby he can benefit from a book like that in the first place. So therefore it doesn't follow that it should be in another language yet. But nevertheless, that's a completely different discussion. So here then, أَنزَلَهُ بِعِلْمِهِ وَالْمَلَائِكَةُ يَشْهَدُونَ الْمَلَائِكَةُ يَشْهَدُونَ يَعْنِي يَشْهَدُونَ أَنَّ اللَّهَ أَنزَلَ هَذَا الْقُرْآنَ بِعِلْمِهِ that the angels, they are witness to the fact and they testify to the fact that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed this Qur'an upon his knowledge. Qala Mujahid, Mujahid, famously known for Tafsir, يَتَنَزَّلُ الْأَمْرُ بَيْنَهُنَّ بَيْنَ السَّمَاءِ السَّابِعَةِ وَالْأَرْضِ السَّابِعَةِ that the command it descends between them from the seventh heaven to the seventh earth. Yushiru ila qawlihi ta'ala, Allahu alladhi khalaqa sab'a samawatin wa min al-ardi mithlahunna, yatanazzalu al-amru baynahunna. He is referring to the ayah where it mentions that Allah created the seven heavens and from the earth, similar to that and the command it descends within them this is the ayah we've come across it before we mentioned it before in the ayah it mentions the seven heavens and they are mentioned in some ahadith about the seven heavens how they ascend and the gaps in between each heaven that is mentioned and clear but then it also says, and from the earths, or the earth, similar to that. Which would therefore indicate that there are seven earths. So what is the meaning of seven earths? Seven heavens, one above the other, that is mentioned in the texts. The seven earths, what is the meaning of seven earths? We discussed this once before. There are different opinions of the scholars regarding what the seven earths might be. And those opinions are that it may be... Some scholars, they said, perhaps the seven earths, the seven grounds, are in reference to the continents of the earth, possibly. Others, they said, because there are seven land masses. Others, they said, 
that it may well be that there are seven earths. This is one earth that we know of and live on. And there are other earths. There are seven earths. Because the ayah says seven heavens. And from the earth just like that. I.e. seven earths. So maybe some scholars said there are other earths just like this earth. A possible explanation some of the scholars have given. There is also another explanation they've given. Some of the scholars, they said, perhaps it is in reference to the seven layers of the earth. The layers of the earth, that the crust and the mantle and all of those layers, and you go down to the core, all of those layers of the earth, perhaps it is in reference to the seven main layers of the earth as you go down. So, it mentions the seven heavens and the seven earths. فَالْأَمْرُ أَمْرُ اللَّهِ وَبَيْنَهُنَّ يَعْنِي بَيْنَ السَّمَاءِ السَّابِعَ وَالْأَرْضِ السَّابِعَ يَتَنَزَّلُ أَمْرُ اللَّهِ بَيْنَهُنَّ وَالسَّمَاوَاتِ سَبْعُ طِبَاقَ And the heavens are seven levels. وَالْأَرَضُونَ كَذَلِكَ سَبْعُ طِبَاقَ And the earths are also seven levels. هذا هو الصحيح في الأرضين. This is the correct understanding regarding the earths, that they are seven levels. ومن الأرض مثلهن ولقول النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم من اقتطع من الأرض شبرا طوقه يوم القيامة من سبع أراضين. That whomsoever iqtata'a min al-ardi shibra. What does that mean? And a shibra is whomsoever takes from the land, steals from the land a handspan. Then he will be tuwiqa. like chained sort of like placed around his neck what will be placed around his neck a burden from the seven heavens uh, from the seven earths where he will be locked around his neck that burden upon him so the sheikh says the reference to the seven earths is the seven layers levels of the earth as opposed to some of the other explanations that it is actually seven independent earths. Then after that, قال البخاري قال حدثنا مسدد قال حدثنا أبو الأحوص قال حدثنا أبو إسحاق الهمداني عن البراء بن عازب قال قال رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم يا فلان إذا أويت إلى فراشك فقل that the Prophet said, Oh, such and such, when you go to your bed, then say. Meaning this is one of the du'as that you say before going to sleep. When you go to your bed, then say, Allahumma 
أسلمت نفسي إليك ووجهت وجهي إليك وفوضت أمري إليك وألجأت ظهري إليك رغبة ورهبة إليك لا ملجأ ولا منجا منك إلا إليك آمنت بكتابك الذي أنزلت وبنبيك الذي أرسلت فإنك إن مت في ليلتك مت على الفطرة وإن أصبحت أصبت أجرا And that last line being separate from the rest of the dua So in this dua, the Prophet said, if you go to your bed, when you go to your bed, and the scholars, they say, therefore, these types of supplications for the night are not said prior to going to your bed. You don't say them when you're relaxing downstairs yet, and half an hour later, you're going to go up to bed. The scholars, they say, the fiqh of these duas, these supplications, إِذَا awaita ila firashika, meaning you're on your bed, You've gone to your bed, you're going to go to sleep now. Then you say these du'as. So in this one, Allahumma aslamtu nafsi ilayk, wa wajahtu wajhi ilayk, wa fawadtu amri ilayk, that I submit myself to you, and I direct myself to you, direct my face to you, and I... And trust my affairs to you. And I resort to you. Seek refuge and resort in you. In fear and hope in you. There is no other resort and there is no other refuge from you except to you. I have iman in your book that you sent. And in your Prophet that you sent. And then the Prophet said, If you were to say that before going to bed, then if you die that night, then you die upon your natural disposition, that innate disposition, meaning you die upon Tawheed. And if you arise, you wake up after that night, you don't die that night, then you've got the reward. You've got the reward of uh, reciting this supplication and sleeping upon that. You have your reward for implementing that sunnah, putting your trust in Allah. And if you die that night having said this, then you die upon Tawheed. So this is one of the supplications for the one going to sleep when you Arrive at the place you're going to sleep. You've got to the place where you're now going to lie down and sleep there. If that be the bed or be elsewhere, then you recite this dua as one of the duas that a person reads before going to sleep. This hadith the point here is regarding the book that you have revealed. Because in one part of the dua you say, I have iman in the book that you have revealed.
وسبق لنا أن البراء قال وبرسولك الذي أرسلت فقال قل بنبيك الذي أرسلت In the narration what happened was that al-bara he narrated it as بِرَسُولِكَ الَّذِي أَرْسَلْتِ And then he was corrected and told the wording is بِنَبِيِّكَ الَّذِي أَرْسَلْتِ وَصَبَقَ لَنَا لِمَاذَا قَالْ قُلْ بِنَبِيِّكَ الَّذِي أَرْسَلْتِ وَبَيَّنَّا أَنَّهُ لِوَجْهَيْنِ And that was for two reasons. Because you can see the wording of the hadith in the dua is you say, I have iman in the book that you revealed and in the prophet that you sent. As opposed to the wording and in the messenger that you sent. Why? Why the wording of in the prophet, I have iman that you sent and not the wording of in the messenger? As Shaykh Al-Athameen says, Because when you say Rasulika alladhi arsat Laysa fiha ma'ana al-nubuwa Amma idha dhukira nabiyaka yudhkar Yadhkur al-nubuwa Wal-risala jami'an If you say In your messenger that you sent Then it doesn't have the meaning of Prophethood But if you say in your prophet, then that is a mentioning of prophethood and messengership together. Now what does that mean? Uh Because here, when you look at the wording of the hadith, وَبِنَبِيِّكَ أَلَّذِي أَرْسَلْتِ In your prophet that you have sent. أَرْسَلَ From the same family tree of words as Rasul, the one who is sent. And that is in connection to messengership. So when you mention وَبِنَبِيِّكَ أَلَّذِي أَرْسَلْتِ Then in reality you're encompassing prophethood and referencing messengership but if you say just the rasul and then arsalt that is both referencing directly messengership only قيل لو قيل برسولك الذي ارسلت فقد يكون المراد به جبريل there is also the point to be made that when you say i have iman in the messenger that you sent the rasul that you have sent Jibreel is also known as a Rasul because Jibreel is a Rasul. A Rasul linguistically is the one you send with a message. Jibreel was sent with that revelation to come and give to the Prophet. He was a Rasul with that revelation to bring it to the messengers, to the Prophets. So Jibreel is known as a Rasul too in that regard. So here if you mention only Rasul Arsalta, the Rasul that you sent, technically that could refer to just Jibreel. 
So in order to make it clear that it's not just specifying it to Jibreel, you say, بِنَبِيِّكَ الَّذِي أَرْسَلْتِ The Prophet that you sent. Now that word, نَبِيِّكَ, is not just referencing Jibreel. It is referencing the Prophets, the Prophets that Allah sent. So now you've clarified that by using the word, نَبِيِّكَ, whereas by using the word, Rasul. It may have only been in reference to Jibreel. It could have been argued that it's only in reference to Jibreel. وَلَوْ قَالْ بِرَسُولِكَ الَّذِي أَرْسَلْتْ لَكَانَتْ دَلَالَتُهَا عَلَى النُّبُوَّةِ بِطَرِيقِ اللُّزُومِ لَكِنْ إِذَا قِيلْ بِنَبِيِّكَ الَّذِي أَرْسَلْتْ كَانَتِ الدَّلَالَةَ عَلَى وَجْهِ الْمُطَابَقَةِ وَالدَّلَالَةَ فِي الْمُطَابَقَةِ what does that mean? That's a proper student kind of homework. You will find the answer. I'll tell you where you'll find the answer. And you can do your homework and nobody's got an excuse for not finding the answer. You'll find the answer to this question. Well, it says firstly that and بِنَبِيِّكَ الَّذِي أَرْسَلْتِ When you say بِرَسُولِكَ الَّذِي أَرْسَلْتِ In the messenger that you sent, we know that every messenger is a prophet, but not every prophet is a messenger. So if you say the messenger you sent that incorporates prophet within it, it incorporates prophet within it. But if you say Nabi, then it's not a case of recognizing that the prophets are incorporated within the word Rasul. It's much more explicit. You clearly said prophet. Mutabaqah. That it's something which is clear from that association, the Prophet which you sent. But what does it really mean, this mutabaqa and the uh, luzum and the, the different types, bitariq al luzum and bitariq al mutabaqa? We're not really going to discuss it here, but for those who are capable, you can go and search and bring us the answer of what this means, mutabaqa, luzum, these things. You find this in the chapter or in the science of what? Put your hands up if you've ever read the book Al-Qawa'id Al-Muthla. The Exemplary Principles, available in English, translated by Ustad Musa Richardson. Who's read that book? Put your hands up. Nobody's ever read that book. Nobody's ever seen that book. Surprise, surprise, huh? So now the question is, or the homework is, go and read that book. And somewhere in that book, you will get a clarification of this. Insha'Allah. Which translation has he done? 
What is the translation is done? Is it Sheikh Thameen's one? So insha'Allah you'll find the answer in there. Insha'Allah you'll find the answer to this issue of mutabaqah and luzum in there. It is one of the points of understanding the names and attributes of Allah. Somewhere in that book. In the olden days the scholars they say when they needed to find something, they needed to find some hadith for example. And they knew the hadith for example was in Bukhari. And Bukhari may be 10 volumes big. So now to find that hadith in Bukhari, 10 volumes big in the olden days when they used to print the books, there was no such thing as indexes and contents pages and these things. A book was just a book beginning to end printed. So then how are they going to find that hadith? Read it all, sit down, open the first page, Bismillah. Start reading through the book until you find what you need to find. And that's one of the reasons the scholars of old and the students of old, students of old, scholars of old, we're talking 50, 60 years plus, before the age of computers, before the age of indexes properly and contents and all these types of things, they were stronger. This being one of the reasons for their strength or one of the causes for aiding them to become stronger in their studies and their knowledge and their abilities. Because when they had to find something and the book is a thousand pages big, they would have to sit down and start reading through and skimming through the whole book until they finally find the hadith they're looking for on page 428. Nowadays, it's not even contents or indexes or anything like that. You don't even need that these days. Nowadays, with Shamilah and these CDs, you put the hadith, the words of the hadith in the few words that you know, and you press enter, and it tells you exactly which book, exactly what page, exactly what chapter, and you're done. No research, no nothing. You go straight to that hadith or that thing that you're looking for and that's it consider the difference between the two a person needs to find a hadith in this book now this book now 800 pages 800 pages long and they need to find a particular hadith in kitab al-tawheed of sahih al-bukhari so what are they gonna do in the olden days sit down from the beginning and start reading through, flicking through all of the hadith until you find it. When you find it, by the time you find it, you flicked across and revised maybe three, four hundred hadith by the time you get to it. Whereas the person today has revised absolutely nothing directly to it. That's why they were stronger in the olden days, or they had an opportunity for gaining greater strength in those days, Oh, well, the opportunity exists these days too, but the ease has come in in a certain way which brings about weakness. Those CDs and things as well, it should be taken note for those who use them. Al-Maktaba Shamila, the, uh, uh, all these books and everything, they're on CDs now. You can just type in words and everything is there available. The modern day books, they're all being put on there as well now.
Those CDs are very, very unreliable in terms of their accuracy. Even the olden day books. You go to Tafsir al-Tabari or Tafsir ibn Kathir on those CDs, they are very unreliable in their accuracy. They are good if you need to find something quickly. You need to find a hadith, 800 pages, the book. How are you going to find it? You need it really quick. You do your search and it will tell you where to find it, page this, page that. Then you should go to the physical copy of that book and read from the physical copy of the book. Don't rely on the CD. Don't get that lazy. Get to that level of laziness, you're going to fall into big errors. Those CDs are very inaccurate. Their content is very inaccurate, full of mistakes. There's an example I saw the other day about, it was an issue of Hajj. A woman has done her obligatory Hajj. She's done her obligatory Hajj. Husband has taken her in the past, or father has taken her, brother has taken her. Somebody's taken her, she's done her obligatory Hajj. Afterwards now, she wants to go again. So it's now an optional Hajj. Maybe she's got her own money. She tells her husband, I'll pay for it myself. I've got the money myself. My brother's going, my father's going, somebody from her maharim. I'll go with them, I'll pay for it. I've got the money, I'll go with them. But the husband says, no, I don't give you permission to go. Is that allowed or not from the husband? Can the husband say to his wife, you've done your obligatory hajj. This is now an optional hajj you want to go on. With your father, your brother, grandfather, whoever it is. I don't give you permission to go. Can he do that or not? According to many scholars, yes. Because it's an optional hajj. And the rights to her husband take priority over optional worship. But that's not the point though. The point is, in the CD, there was a particular book of fiqh. In the CD it said, لَيْسَ لَهُ مَنْعُهَا مِنْ ذَلِكَ in the physical copy of the book, when you go to it, Lahu Manuha Min In the CD, they've written an extra word in there somehow by accident. He is not allowed to prohibit her from going. The actual wording in the actual book, physical paper and ink says, he is allowed to prevent her from going on an optional hajj. In the CD by accident they've added on, he is not allowed. The word not has got in there somehow by accident. <coughs> Look at the level of error you're going to fall into, and that's just an example. There are many like that. Scholars all used to say, don't rely on that. Students nowadays, inverted commas, students nowadays, who think they are students, because they are sitting there in front of CDs and all of their knowledge is off these CDs and they're researching and writing things off CDs, they're going to have a lot of mistakes in that. In the olden days they used to say, and they still say, a student who makes books his shaykh 
is gonna have more things wrong in his understanding than he is right. Meaning, a person who only relies upon books, sits at home and reads, sits at home and reads the whole of Sahih al-Bukhari, sits at home and reads the whole of Sahih Muslim, sits at home and reads the explanation of Sheikh al-Thaymeen, sits and reads and reads. The books are his source of knowledge. If the books are his only source of knowledge, then he's going to end up with more mistakes than what he knows as correct and accurate. Because reading books alone can lead to misunderstanding. Like even in this example now, the hadith that we just quoted, unless you understand where the break is, then you are going to grossly misinterpret it to a level of shirk. Where the narration says, I believe in the book that you have revealed and in the prophet that you have sent, so indeed if you die in that night, who is that referring to? To you the person. But if a person isn't paying attention and you're following through everything else prior to that, you're talking about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This is the type of grave error a person may fall into by not recognizing what they are reading properly and carefully. So the point here is, how what was the point regarding CDs? How do we get to CDs? The homework. So the homework is from Al-Qawa'id Al-Muthla who can find out what's going on with Luzum and Mutabaqa? That is only for those who are capable. The other homework is the one for everybody. Find the tafsir of the ayah. The ayah number 166 from Surah An-Nisa. 166 from Surah An-Nisa. Final mentioning here. Qawlu nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. يَتَعَاقَبُونَ فِيكُمْ malaika That there are angels that alternate between you. And we spoke about that already in the previous narrations as well. That they come to you at the time of Asr and the time of Hajar. That was already mentioned in a hadith before. And generally that there are angels in guardianship over you. In the Quran it mentions لَهُ مُعَقِّبَاتٌ مِّن بَيْنِ يَدَيْهِ وَمِنْ خَلْفِهِ that there are those upon him in guardianship, alternating upon him, uh, before him and behind him, in front of him and behind him and around him. Al-Mu'aqqibat. Oh, the question here is, is the meaning of that these angels? When it says that there are angels that alternate around you, is the meaning of them the ones in this ayah? الظاهر أنها التي تحفظ الإنسان وأما هذه فتحفظ أعماله ويحتمل أن تكون هي المعقبات It is possible they could be these angels that guard over a person and it is possible they may be actually the angels that write down the deeds of the person one are the set of angels that write down the deeds of a person and the others are a set of angels that God over a person. It could be like that. 
that there are the angels that guard over a person and that's what's intended and the others are the ones that preserve the deeds of that person uh, and so there could be a difference in the meaning between the two or it could be that both of these are referring to the same set of angels at the end of the narration it also said Allahumma aslamtu nafsi ilayka wa fawwadtu amri ilayka wa wajjahtu wajhi ilayka fahal yuqra'an am kayfa najma' wa qad sarat fi lafzin akhar Allahumma aslamtu nafsi ilayk wa fawwadtu amri ilayk bi taqdim fawwadtu In the narration it says that, O Allah, I submit myself to you and I entrust my affairs to you and I direct myself to you. But in another narration it says, O Allah, I submit myself to you and then I entrust my affair to you by placing the fawwadtu in front. But the point the sheikh wants to make is if you have a difference in wording like that, addition, or change of order between one hadith and another, then what do you do in that scenario if there is a difference in wording? إِذَا كَانَ الْحَدِيثُ وَاحِدُ وَكَانَ الزَّائِدُ ثِقَةُ فَإِنَّهُ يُؤْخَذُ بِالزِّيَادَةِ لِأَنَّهُ حَدِيثٌ وَاحِدٌ If it is one narration, but it has different versions. How can that be? Meaning, I now narrate to you. This class now, this class we've done today. 50 people, 60 people, 100 people, 200 people, everybody goes and explains this class onwards to another person. Everybody's gonna say, we were talking about the hadith of what you say before you go to sleep. And that we were saying X, Y, and Z, the details we've mentioned. There could be some people who remember more and others who remember less. So even though the source of the narration is this one gathering tonight, the versions that are released from the people will be Different in terms of how much. So in that case, you're going to end up with now 50 explanations of the people, some of them with additions that others don't have. So how do we know the people narrating those extras are legitimate? There is a certain level that all of them are narrating. Everybody is narrating the same thing to a certain level. But then there are some who remembered more. But those who remembered more, 
are therefore now narrating something that others are not, can we take that addition or not then? If they are thiqah, if they are thiqah, meaning they are basically trustworthy, reliable, their memory, everything, all of that is in place, and there is no reason for any doubt upon them or any issue with them, then their additions can be taken and accepted. Their additions can be taken and accepted. So the Shaykh says in this type of situation, if you see a hadith and it's got a dua in it, for example, but then you see another hadith with the same dua stemming out from the same chain of narration, but it has an extra word in it, if that extra word is in the scenario we've explained, a thiqah narrator narrated that addition, then that addition can be accepted. It can be accepted. He memorized something extra that the others did not. He memorized something extra the others did not remember. So that in that case can be accepted in that scenario. That brings us to the end of that particular hadith. But insha'Allah ta'ala, the next narration will start with next time. Uh, from the next lesson and it's almost to the end of this chapter now next lesson will be the end of this chapter insha'Allah and then we'll start the chapter after that the new chapter that will begin uh, insha'Allah from next week any questions or anything on that or anything else Statements of innovation and kufr. Kufr, uh, an innovation in a multiple choice paper question. If you have, for example, an exam now, and there's a multiple choice exam, for example, very simply, to be a Muslim, you have to believe in ar-rububiyyah. That's your option A. Option B, you have to believe in Ar-Rububiyya and Al-Uluhiyyah and Al-Asma'u Wa-Sifat. Option C, none of the above. So now in that case, option A, we know, is the Aqeedah of the Mushrikun that they only believed in the Rububiyya. It doesn't make you a Muslim. Option C, don't believe in any of the above. Absolute kufr as well. If you don't believe in any of the above, so that isn't. Tawheed. So can you have those types of options in an exam paper, multiple choice basically, to educate, it's for the purpose of education, for the purpose of an examination to see if the people understand or they don't. I'm not aware of any statement of the scholars about it about having an optional multiple choice paper question where there are those types of options. 
in that type of scenario, if you are going to give options, what would have to be done is that you have to clarify on that paper when marked to that person the answers and what was incorrect. Normally in an exam or some types of exams, you may just get your mark back, you never get your exam paper back. But in that type of scenario, you would have to give the answers. Because you couldn't give possibly wrong answers and then leave a person in that exam picking options and never knowing if he got it right or not that option. Never knowing if option A, Rububiyah, was okay or not. You've got to explain. That would be the minimum for definite. That if you're going to do that type of option, you have to explain. And that may occur in lectures and things. It may well occur, but it's not grasped or understood or picked up on. A speaker may be giving a lesson or a lecture, and he may say, in passing, so the mushrikun, they used to believe in the rububiyah of Allah. They used to believe that Allah is the creator, the sustainer, the provider, the one who gives life and death. So does that make them Muslim then? Or do you have to believe in Al-Uluhiyya too? Right now I've just given you a multiple choice option in a statement in the middle of a lecture. That's exactly what it is right there. A multiple choice option. So now you're going to either say yes, Rububiyya is enough or you're going to say no, you have to have Al-Uluhiyya too. But obviously straight after that in the lecture you're going to now clarify and explain exactly what it is. So same with a written multiple choice exam like that, if you were giving it to kids or to the population at large, you would have to clarify to them what the answers are. You'd have to give them the answers at the end. At the minimum, that would have to be done. But over and above that, Allah I'm not aware of anything over and above that. It's something like we just showed there in that example, which would occur typically in lectures that you would do that type of thing, but then you clarify. So in written form, if it is done like that, but then clarified clearly, then it's a means of education, you could argue only. A person is being told, is it rububiyah, or is it rububiyah, uluhiyah, and asma wa sifat? So now he's got to pick, and then you tell him straight away, it's all of them because of X, Y, and Z. Allah Anything else? Waste garment, it's obviously in reference to the garments in the manner that they used to dress, uh, uh, that they used to dress at the time, because all of the narrations the scholars have mentioned, they were obviously mentioned in a way that was appropriate at the time to them. So at that time, obviously, Izar, Rida, they were the traditional clothings. So to uh, uh, wipe, not to wipe, to uh, dust your bed 
with your waist garment, basically that garment that you would be wearing as was the norm and that's how they would sleep with that garment, to use that to just flick the bed to ensure that there is nothing from poisonous insects or other things on that bed. And it doesn't necessitate right now that you have to do it in that manner. Because the people nowadays, many of them in their cultures and traditions don't go to bed in any type of loose garment of that nature that you can flick. You have nowadays all of the other forms of the modern fashion of the nightwear. And that wouldn't allow itself to be flicked and whatever else to do that. So it doesn't necessitate, you have to do it in that way. But what is necessitated from the narration is the act of flicking and dusting off the bed. That's the, the importance of the point. The manner and the method is mentioned as the manner and the method that would be typical at the time, which would still be typical now for many people, for some people, but maybe not for others. And if that's the case, then it's not an issue. It's not the method, it's the act of dusting the bed that is mentioned should be done. That's a question the scholars have been asked. If you're in a higher level of paradise and you want to see someone in a lower level of paradise, then what can be done? Huh? You know, one thing with all of these questions about paradise, you can give one answer which you can answer, you can use as an answer for all of these paradise related queries. All paradise related questions will I be able to do this? Will, will, how will we be able to do that? And what about this? And what about that in paradise? All paradise related queries, that question included others. As a general answer, because the classic is always, you know it, when the women ask, the men are going to have and so what are the women going to have in paradise? And this question here now, different levels of paradise. One answer for all of that as a generic answer is in paradise the generic answer is that there will never be a situation where you have loss or disappointment at something. Paradise is the bliss, the ultimate bliss there will never be a situation where you feel sad at something or disappointed or how we feel in this world when certain things happen. That doesn't exist in paradise. So what we know is, as a generic answer, you will be in absolute bliss in paradise. All of these scenarios that you think of, will this be possible, will that be possible? All of it in the general sense you will be in bliss 
in regards to this situation. However it works, you'll be in bliss regarding that situation. For the women, they will be in bliss, the women of paradise, regardless of how it works in the situation. So there's never a situation where people always think of these questions, but paradise is bliss, but what about this though? Will I be able to do this or will I be able to do that? Will I be able to see this person or that? Or how will this happen and how will that work? Paradise is the land of absolute bliss for a person or the, the residence of absolute bliss for a person. So there's never a question of trying to think of a scenario where you think it negates the bliss to some degree. That will never arise. That's a general answer to any type of question where the scenario in the question seems to be indicating that there's not bliss in this scenario if I don't get this or I don't get that. You will have all of the ultimate bliss in paradise, the greatest of it, seeing Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So, you have nothing to worry about. Anything else? In fact, before I forget, a couple of weeks ago, some people were asking afterwards about the zoo and about going to the zoo. You remember the story we mentioned about the, the brother from one of the subcontinental countries? You have to remember, those types of stories don't take them as literal for this land or for other places. Khawarimul Muru'a, this topic of what dents a person's honor and has some impact and erodes a person's dignity, it differs place to place, country to country, differs. Like in Saudi Arabia, for example, as Shaykh Al-Athameen gives the example for Khawarim Al-Muru'a in his explanation of Al-Baqoniyya, he said, if you went to a cafe, and the cafes, especially in the summer as well here, you have the outdoor seating. They have tables outside. And then beyond that is the road in the street. If you went to a cafe and you sat on the outdoor seating, so you sat out in the street, then you are an indignified person. You are a person with no honor. You are a person who is not from the muhaddithin, according to some of the scholars. That would be considered, well, that's exaggerating the point to make the point, but that is considered as something dispraiseworthy. A student of knowledge, sitting out in the street, slurping his tea. Sitting out in public view in the street. People driving past in their cars, Assalamu alaikum and whatever else. Sitting out in the street, eating and drinking. What are you talking about? Have you no honor, no dignity for yourself? Go sit inside or go sit at home sitting out in the street eating and drinking. In this country, nobody even thinks about that. In this country, you go sit outside in the cafe, what's wrong, what are you on about? So it differs between the people, what they see and what they perceive. That example of that story was, in particular, in fact, even when he was telling it, it's not something which would be understood as a, as a, uh, from the khawarim of the muru'ah. Something that takes away your dignity to go and visit a zoo. It was, even when he was narrating it, more comical. 
that my grandfather has taken the issue of the dignity and the honor and this issue of hadith and the muhaddithun to such a level that he tells me you're an, you've lost your dignity and honor by going and walking around in a zoo. Student of knowledge walking around in a zoo. So that, that was an example he was giving of his grandfather and that he's taken it maybe to a level of strictness that isn't really what is accepted elsewhere normally. But the zoo thing otherwise, about animals, the ruling of keeping animals, then like we said last time, if an animal is oppressed in any way, then that is Islamically impermissible. You cannot oppress animals. So if you have an animal that you're keeping, we, we mentioned some examples of pets. If you keep some type of pet in a small contained cage where it can't get any type of freedom, that isn't suitable. If you have a cage that gives it some freedom, is able to move around and everything, stretch the legs, etc. The animal can move about, it can do its thing, then okay. Because the point is, you cannot oppress the animal. If you're not oppressing the animal, you're giving it some freedom, you're giving it some ability to move around, you let it out, you bring it back in, has some freedom, has water, has drink, it's been looked after, kept, maintained, and has freedom. It's not stuck in a tiny cage, you can't move, you can't do nothing, it's restricting it, then it's permissible. The scholars give an example in particular of some scenarios where it appears even more than that you're allowed to have animals. Like for example, birds. With birds, there is actually a hadith about one of the companions having a bird. And that's the famous narration. And the hadith says, So there was a hadith about one of the companions having a bird as a pet. It doesn't mention though how he kept the bird as a pet. Did he keep it in a cage? Doesn't mention. But the thing is, if he had a bird as a pet, you've got to have it controlled somehow. A bird isn't just going to come back to you every day, that bird, fly off and go wherever and come back to you every day. To have a bird as a pet, you're going to have to have some level of restriction upon it. Somehow, you've got that bird there as a pet. Al-Hafidh ibn Hajar said, it's possible that he was keeping the bird in some type of cage. Possibly. It's possible he was keeping the bird in some type of cage. It's even possible, and this is only possibility, not a ruling as such. Al-Hafidh ibn Hajar said, it's possible he may have clipped the wings of the bird. So the bird couldn't fly away and, and, and escape and, and go. And so he kept the bird like that, but looked after all of its need, food and drink, the bird moved around, everything, possibly. So these are types of narrations the scholars they use to explain the principle that you cannot oppress animals as long as you are not oppressing them, you're fulfilling their needs, then there isn't an issue as such. 
And so in zoos and safari parks, if they are fulfilling the needs of the animals, then there isn't any oppression going on, then there isn't an issue as such. They have, for example, in the zoos, large uh, enclosures for the lions, big enclosures they can roam around. For the, uh, uh, the, the hippopotamus, they have a huge wet area they can go into the lake and out and whatever else. They have spaces, large enclosures where animals can move about and they have space and open air and everything and food and drink and everything. Then there's no oppression occurring upon the animals. Then the scholars say then that isn't a wrong as such. There is a difference of opinion over it. Some scholars have the opinion it is impermissible to restrict animals in any way, to keep them to keep them in any way, in a zoo, in a safari, in anything else, in any other way, to enclose animals and to keep them under your control like that, it's not permissible, some scholars. But others, they said, as long as you're not oppressing the animal, then there's no issue. Sheikh bin Baz and others, they've mentioned it, about the zoos specifically even, as long as you're not oppressing the animal, then there isn't an issue. Safari parks especially, the way they designed open spaces, animals roaming around, no oppression there at all. They're roaming around in their natural types of habitats. They're given their food, they're given their drink. So that isn't haram. It's not haram. And you can't say, in case the fatwa was being spread by anybody, that a zoo is haram to go to, or that safaris are haram to go to. That isn't the case. That is not the case. It is not haram to go to those places. The example being given at the time was, the story of the individual and how he took that as an issue of the khawarim of the muru'a and that can be different in different circumstances. In some circumstances, trivial things we think as trivial can be from the khawarim of the muru'a. There used to be students in the University of Medina. I remember one guy. He never ever used to play football with the other students. Students maybe got together once a week, play a bit of football or something. One guy, he never used to play. He said, you know, I do enjoy it. When I was young, I used to play and kick about the ball and things like that. But he said, how can I do it? Here we are in the University of Medina. We're studying. We have our books, hadith, chains of narration, all these things we're doing. How can I go onto that pitch and run around like a chicken kicking a ball everywhere? How can I do that? I can't imagine the Salaf doing that type of thing. You can never picture the scholars doing that type of thing. He said, how can I do that? You can't picture the people of nobility doing that type of thing, running around kicking a ball. We will think that's absolutely nothing. Trivial. That's how the, the thought is amongst the people, especially in the West. You tell them football or soccer is, is something which isn't good. It's, you know, for a student of knowledge, what are you talking about running around shouting football? Here, pass me, header. You're going to be doing that? You're a student doing that? Is that how a student behaves? For some people, that's how it is. That's how it is. And in some cultures, in some places, the students may be at that kind of level. They won't do that type of thing. And they view it as something not really dignified to get on your sports clothes and to run around and kick a ball and shout and scream. They don't view it as a student of knowledge type of activity. But that doesn't make it 
haram. The example of the zoo and that grandfather doesn't make it haram to visit a zoo or to go to a safari. And the actual fiqh of it, like we said now, as long as the animals have their rights and they're not oppressed, then it's not considered as haram, according to many of the scholars, to hold an animal under your control as long as you are giving it its rights, feeding it everything. Because the narration mentions about the woman who held a cat and she did not feed it or let it even eat the insects off the ground and things. So she was oppressing the cat. And the narration says she will end up in hellfire. The scholars therefore say, if you kept the cat but didn't oppress it, then there'd be no problem. And that's the type of narration they take those principles from. So, just to make that clear as well, because it appeared that it wasn't very clear the last time. So, we'll leave it on that for tonight. Inshallah ta'ala, carry on next week. Also make a note, in this month now, in March, there's probably going to be one or two Saturdays that are going to be off because of certain conferences occurring. One of them, for definite, is going to happen, inshallah, in the last Saturday of March. And that's going to be in Liverpool, the last Saturday of March, March the 30th. There's a conference in Liverpool, inshallah ta'ala. All of the du'at will be there, full one-day conference, five or six speakers, maybe some telelinks, uh, the usual stores and everything else. So put that into your diaries for the 30th of March for Liverpool. And it's possible and very likely there may well be a conference before that too for another Saturday, but uh, we'll await confirmation for that. But it's likely there could be another one too. So this month, get yourselves mentally prepared to go and attend some conferences, go and attend at some of the Marakis, all of the brothers, the du'at, the speakers, everybody. These are events that are good for the family, for da'wah, for newcomers. They go and see everybody there. They go to the stalls, and it's a nice day. A nice environment, they learn stuff, they attend the, the, the lectures and the, the, the gatherings. So inshallah ta'ala, that's going to be happening this month. So we'll conclude upon that for tonight and carry on next week.